I think Ron Baker said it to paraphrase him that it's it's the measure of our ignorance. It's what we can't measure. So the fact that it's growing, which it is, is kind of worrisome. Overall, the tally of goodwill added to corporate balance sheets every year since the 2008 financial crisis has outstripped the amount written down due to source deals or other issues. Did you know that you could use AP Automation as an entry point to offering client accounting services in your firm? A successful transformation from clunky manual processes to automated processes can lead your clients to wanting even more of the services you provide at your firm. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Bill.com, later in the episode. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Timesheets.com. Any guess to what Timesheets.com does? If you said employee time tracking for small to medium-sized businesses, you are partially correct. If you said robust time tracking for payroll, billing, or job costing with mobile access and real-time reporting, you're even more correct. But Timesheets.com is way more than time tracking. It includes employee HR records, paid time off, mileage, and expense tracking. It's all included. There aren't any monthly base fees. You just pay per employee to get all the Timesheets.com features, time, expense, and HR in one place. Timesheets.com is offering listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast two free months of service. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash timesheets. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash T-I-M-E-S-H-E-E-T-S. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. OnPay is an easy-to-use, full-service payroll that's the right fit for all your clients, whether they have just one or 500 employees. They handle all the complicated stuff like agricultural payrolls, Form 943, multi-state, and H-2A visas. OnPay even makes it easy to switch from other payroll services by doing all the data entry for each client that you set up. Right now, Cloud Accounting Podcast listeners can get three free months of OnPay payroll service. To learn more, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash OnPay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-N-P-A-Y. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. I'm so excited, David. You have no idea. This is like the nerdiest thing to be excited about. What did you get? Is there a new iPhone, an iPhone 12 coming out? Like, oh no, it's even nerdier than that. This whole discussion about Goodwill and FASB was featured in the Wall Street Journal in a pretty detailed article all about it and how it affects the stock market. So that's my top story. Just goodwill. Yeah, the accounting for goodwill, not the not-for-profit, the concept. You know, when you pay more than the value of the assets of a corporation when you buy it, right, more than the fair market value of the individual assets, you record goodwill on your balance sheet. And FASB, as we have discussed, is spending the next six months trying to figure out how public companies should account for that. Should they continue to record it and then test it for impairment every year, which is very expensive and time consuming? Or should they be able to amortize it over a period of time like private companies? And uh, believe it or not, this has significant implications for the markets and for accounting and for companies. Continue on. Fill me in on this. Well, we'll talk about it at more length. Okay. Yeah, okay. But I want to. I want to. You know, hear what what what's new with you. I don't have a top story, but I do have a story that affected me personally this week. Okay. So okay. You use Google, correct? Oh yeah, all the time. Have you noticed that the Google ads just kind of blend in with the search results now? Yeah. Well, always like the top four results. I know those are going to be sponsored. Paid for. But they used to have a nice like different color highlighted box around the sponsored links. Mm -hmm. you, you could tell that they were not the real link, the, the search results. 
And they've, they've Google's reasoning behind them changing this is to make it simpler and cleaner, the landing page, et cetera, and on mobile. But the, the real reason why it's, it's about getting people to make bad clicks and misclick. So yesterday, this, this happened to me. I went to call Orange Theory Fitness because I had to change the time for my class. I Googled Orange Theory Fitness because usually it'll come up and once you're at Orange Theory Fitness, you see them and then there's a button to call. Right, right. The phone number is displayed because Google has made the ads blend in and the biggest button to call was a different fitness company completely. <laughs> so I look like a complete idiot wasting this other company's time. Well, no, they wanted you to do that because they're going to try and get you to switch. But they didn't try. So well, obviously there's, there's a failure somewhere, but ultimately, so there's some stats on this. So this is an article on The Verge. So people are kind of questioning Google now. They're kind of saying it's the new Yahoo. Yeah. Like, congratulations, Google. 20 years later, you've became what you did not want to become. They're saying that they're seeing click-through rates since Google has made these changes as high as a 17-8% higher now. Interesting. So, your, so I, I just went and did a search and I see the top result says in small bold text ad right in front of the URL. So that is less obvious than it used to be, right? Yep. And it's even uh, worse on mobile. They're basically giving kind of like a, almost a teeny little visual icon. The article that we'll link to in the show notes has screenshots of it kind of over time. Right. And you can see where it used to be very obvious, hey, these are the ads. Right. And mm-hmm. now people are mistakenly just clicking on them. Interesting. Well, so what's the takeaway for our listeners here. What is the takeaway? Just be aware, right, of, of what you're clicking on, ultimately. And I'm thinking, because I run Google Ads campaigns, that if I was a firm and I wanted to maybe reach my competitors, clients, I could run ad campaigns on their name. And now it'll be even easier to redirect them to my firm instead. But the same thing could happen to me. It could be easier for a competitor of mine to run ads for keywords that are related to my firm, like my firm's name, like what was happening with Orange Theory, right? And that competing gym. And they could try to get in touch with my clients that way. That's correct. You could try to steal clients and you could, you, you'd want to run an ad that's at least ad-like as possible. So it looks like it's just an organic, right. normal search term. But ultimately what this did, it actually pushed me now after three years to just put my Orange Theory Fitness's phone number in my phone. And so now I will never search for f- fitness on Google again. So now they've completely lost me as a customer for that church. Well, that's interesting. Well, um, I want to get back to my story, that Wall Street Journal article. But before yes. we do, I think we have some reviews and we have some letters. Some feedback, listener feedback. We got some listener feedback. So I'll read the review that we got today. This is from Kyle Beltel from Kaufman CPA Company. Listening to the Cloud Accounting Podcast is one of the highlights of my week. Blake and David strike the perfect balance of being entertaining while also delivering high-quality news stories, in-depth investigative journalism, and fantastic interviews. As a CPA in public practice, I consider the Cloud Accounting Podcast essential listening far better than any of the podcasts that the AICPA or my state association puts out. Keep up the great work, guys. Well, thank you, Kyle. And Kyle also sent us an email, uh, some feedback on one of the topics we talked about in a previous episode. We were talking about companies putting a limit on the number of meetings. I think you suggested that, David. They were talking about cutting back the, the days of the week people would work. Some country was passing a law about that, right? And I said, they should just pass a law on how many meetings people have. And that would actually be the real boost. And so Kyle sent us this article in Bloomberg. And the headline is, this Japanese company charges its staff $100 an hour to use conference rooms. Did you see this? 
No, but um... it's pretty funny. It's a Japanese company, Disco, that charges employees to use company resources, literally takes it out of their salary. Everybody gets an allowance for the whole quarter, a year, whatever it is. I don't remember. It's a set period of time. And then when you utilize resources like booking meetings, you pay out of that account and you get to keep whatever's left over at the end. I heard recently on a podcast that a company has their own internal currency Mm -hmm. to save people's time, right? So if you and I are coworkers, Blake, if I need to interrupt you or schedule a meeting with you or... I have a limited amount of currency I'm allowed to spend to get that meeting with you. So I have to be very careful and wise on yep. meetings I schedule and who I invite because I only have so much currency. And it reminds me of um, a few years back into it, we had, there was a hackathon and somebody built a, a plugin for Outlook that would look at all the employees you've inv- invited to that meeting and basically calculate what the cost of that meeting is. So <laughs> you start breaking a meeting and next thing you know, you, 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 you have a $45,000 meeting on your hands. And that's the thing right, is, for it, people's time. is there are crazy situations where... I may not be able to spend $500 without getting an arduous number of approvals to buy some equipment, but I can easily book 10 people who cost the company you know, $200 an hour into a conference room for two hours. And I've spent thousands of dollars of people's time uh, without having to get any approval. There's something here. I don't know if more companies will adopt it, but there should definitely be at least a measurement of who is really like booking the most time-wasting meetings or every meeting should have a cost associated with it. This will never be tracked because it's managers that are doing it. And <laughs> managers will not track data about their own performance. Oh, right. There so. you go. Got it. Well, let's get to our next letter to the editor. Hold on. Let me get it out of the mailbag here. I forgot to open my mailbag before. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. This one is from Donnie Shimamoto, who we mentioned on a previous episode, and, and he must have been listening and heard us. We were talking about his recommendations or his predictions, I should say, around RPA saying that RPA is going to be the biggest thing to impact accountants this year, which I think so. I agree. So he said uh, that he wanted to clarify that Zapier is not RPA. I think we were discussing RPA on the episode and then we immediately pivoted to Zapier. And so maybe there's some confusion about us saying that Zapier is an example of RPA. Zapier is an example of automation, which is kind of like the overall umbrella for this, but it isn't RPA. It isn't robotic process automation. And uh, Donnie sent us a definition from Gartner about what RPA is. And I'll just read some of this. Oh, because it's from Gartner, it's official. Yeah, right. (laughs) They are. They're the gods of defining all this stuff. So Gartner says, RPA tools are designed to mimic the same manual paths taken by a human by using a combination of user interface interaction or descriptor technologies. An RPA tool operates by mapping a process for the software robot to follow via computer pathways and various data repositories so RPA can operate in place of a human. And Donnie says, Quote, basically, you use RPA when traditional integrations or APIs aren't available. If you think about the number of systems that don't integrate but are still used together, or how often two vendors may have an integration but it doesn't operate the way you want it to, that's when you might use RPA to, for example, download a list of transactions, summarize them, and then post a batch journal entry into QBO slash zero instead of using the integration which does each transaction, which posts each transaction. So that's the key difference is that RPA to me is sort of like a a macro that can operate across different programs and interfaces that actually can move a mouse like a human. Yeah, yeah. It's just doing um, the the clicking, the button pushing, the button mashing, the clicking on repetitive tasks that can be repeated. And you're training um, some plugins to do that. Um, But I could argue, right, it's 
it's remote process automation, right? And Zapier falls under that. Robotic process right? automation. But, robotic, but, robotic, right? But, but Zapier is not that because Zapier creates an API connection. So it's direct transfer of the information without this like clicking yes button, and clicking. no i would argue it's very similar there's a lot of overlap because there's plenty of times where you have to take one app move the data to like google and then connect another app to the google spreadsheet to get it into your app you have to manipulate it or you're maybe you're using a combination of both you have to get the uh, csv file possibly from some site bring it into a google doc connect that via zapier like i i just don't see like like this is like arguing accountants versus bookkeepers well, versus you know. no. And here's here's the distinguish distinguishing thing, and where it really matters is where Donnie operates a lot of the time is in the mid market with larger companies that have a lot of on premise ERP systems, and so that is where there's a big difference because those systems have no APIs. So RPA is the only possible solution for them. And, and maybe that's the big difference. Zapier costs what fifty bucks a month. These RPA systems are costing thousands and thousands, if not ten thousands a month. So yeah, and there's <laughs> that's, the, that's the real difference. Yeah, and there are uh, more sophisticated enterprise versions of Zapier. I can't remember the name of these companies right now, but there's there's they, they do the same idea of creating API for APIs situation. Uh, but yes, key difference is Zapier is an API machine, and RPA is more like macros. Cool. Well, thanks, Donnie, for that clarification. Hopefully that cleared things up for our listeners. It definitely did for me. So let's get back to the news because we got a lot to cover. And I really want to dig into this Wall Street Journal article uh, about Goodwill. So the, the headline is Goodwill Sparks Deep Division, at least on balance sheets. It's summarizing a lot of what we've been talking about, how FASB, the Financial Accounting Standards Board, is looking into possibly changing the way that public companies account for Goodwill maybe allowing them to amortize over a period rather than having to test for impairment on an annual basis. And some of the stats in this article, it does a really good job of explaining the scope of the, the challenge and the problem and why actually it matters a lot. So it starts with an example. When Amazon bought Whole Foods in 2017, they paid $13.7 billion for it. That was $9 billion more than the value of the supermarket stores and other net assets. $9 billion more than what accountants said is the fair market value of all the assets. So that $9 billion, did Jeff Bezos overpay for Whole Foods market by $9 billion? Some people would say so. They'd say that's crazy. But Jeff Bezos is smart. Let's assume that he knows what he's doing. So what do we do as accountants? Well, we add $9 billion of an asset onto Amazon's books and we call it goodwill, right? It's the difference between the, the assets uh, at their fair market value and what the investor is willing to pay for it, what the market values that company at. And it's not just Amazon that has a bunch of goodwill on its books. There's a lot of companies that have goodwill on their books. The S&P 500 had $3.5 trillion worth of goodwill on their books at the end of September according to CalcBench. And that is up 67% from 2013. It's up 67%. This is because there's been a wave of mergers and acquisitions. It represents 9% of total S&P 500 assets. So all the S&P 500 companies, you take all their balance sheets and pull out the goodwill and add it up. It's 9% of all their assets and 42% of total equity. And so this is, I guess, been happening over time. So every time another company acquires another company, if they're doing it any level of premium, that premium has to go somewhere. Yeah. And it just goes into goodwill and then- it Goes into goodwill. It just sits there forever. It sits there 
Well, it sits there and then every year the accountants have to do a study that asks, hey, is this company that we acquired still worth what we paid for it, including the goodwill? If it's not, then you have to cut out, cut out some of that goodwill or all of it potentially and drop the value on the books. That's the way it works now. Private companies, they can just say, we're going to write off the goodwill over a period of time, number of years, maybe it's 10 years, something like that. Public companies can't do that. So, so the reason FASB is looking into this is because it's very expensive to do those studies. Can you imagine how much it costs to look at the whole enterprise of Whole Foods every single year and try to figure out if it's still worth at least what Bezos paid for it? And, and who does that? Does that uh, do they use one of the big four? They kind of outsource that work to a consulting company and they, they pay them. Like, is this kind of like a, a big machine that's not going to stop? I don't know. I'm not in that world of valuation, but I imagine it's a big business. So companies complain about it because it's expensive and is it really worth it? There's arguments on either side that have been presented to the FASB, which is soliciting commentary right now. Some people say it's too expensive. We should do something simpler, just like private companies. People on the other side say, well, if we do that, we're going to lose valuable information. Right now, we're not going to find out when there's a big drop in the valuation. And then the counter to that on the side of amortization is that well, you know, these studies are highly subjective and it's really easy for managers to manipulate them to to cut the goodwill in a in a period that's more favorable to them. So arguments on both sides. Here's the thing, um, another stat that's kind of puts this in perspective. For all public companies trading on US markets, goodwill exceeds $5.5 trillion. Okay, so let's just step back for a moment away from this decision or this argument about how to account for goodwill or how to deal with it, how to amortize it or not. And just like, think about it for a second. G goodwill, $5.5 trillion of goodwill on, on the US markets. And I mentioned on the S&P 500, it's 9% of their total assets and 42% of equity. So like the question is, what is this goodwill, right? What does it actually represent? When, when you think about assets, uh, what is an asset? It's a resource that the company controls, that they own, that is supposed to generate some future economic benefit. That's simply put what an asset is. And is goodwill, does goodwill meet that definition even? So that's why the first question in FASB's survey is what is goodwill? We don't even have a <laughs> agreed upon definition that is solid enough where we can just assume that we all know what goodwill is. And so some- Yeah, in my brain, brain I'm like, it's, it's, it's the brand asset. Right, the reputation of the brand asset. Except though, that can actually be on the books. So that should already be accounted for. Brand has value. You can measure it. It's an asset that we can you know, determine has a value. So goodwill is not that specifically. Goodwill is something that we can't define as accountants. Is it like that account in QuickBooks, the ask your accountant account, people just dump crap in it? Is it, is it turning into that? And that's the criticism of this stepping back from this whole argument is that goodwill doesn't even make sense. It's just a plug. It's the difference between what accountants can measure and the value to the market. I think Ron Baker said it to paraphrase him that it's it's the measure of our ignorance. It's what we can't measure. So the fact that it's growing, which it is, is kind of worrisome. Overall, the tally of goodwill added to corporate balance sheets every year since the 2008 financial crisis has outstripped the amount written down due to source deals or other issues. Goodwill keeps growing. And why does it keep growing? Well, maybe it's because modern accounting 
gap can't figure out how to properly value the assets of corporations these days. So this all ties back to problems with accounting. The book that we talk about, The End of Accounting, which criticizes how we do accounting now as being very old-fashioned and not being able to keep up with this concept of intangible assets and being more and more important to companies. There's a chart here in the story that shows that from 2013 to 2019, total goodwill on the books of S&P 500 companies went from about $2 trillion to over $3 trillion. So in the span of six years, now we've added a trillion, more than a trillion dollars of goodwill. Maybe that is an indication that we we aren't properly valuing assets because we don't really know, like modern accounting gap doesn't know how to handle these intangibles that are becoming more and more important to big public companies. And, and ultimately, like corporations in theory are thought as an equal as an individual. A corporation is just like me, right? It's, it's an entity. Well, as Mitt Romney famously said, corporations are people. Okay, exactly, right? But if I can't go do a financial transaction and go to my bank to get a home loan or a mortgage and be like, I have all this goodwill. Right. Well, like they would laugh in your face. Why is it okay for corporations to do that then? Right. So that's that's the problem I have with it fundamentally is that here we have an asset, it's an intangible asset on a corporation's books, but it alone doesn't how does it generate future economic benefit? It can only generate future economic benefit in combination with the other assets. Like it, it's just a plug. It's almost like, you know, if we had a account on every corporation's books that was reconciliation discrepancy and it was 9% of all assets. So when if I pay a premium for Whole Foods, I'm paying a premium that nine extra billion dollars. A huge premium. Right. On that, when I make that purchase. That that premium difference is really some sort of expense to my, my company. Like it's a premium acquisition expense. And that's the argument for amortizing it over time. But there's another argument that it shouldn't even be an asset at all and amortize. It should just go as a reduction to equity. I'm basically giving up some of my equity to acquire this business. That makes sense. It's a transfer. It's an equity transfer. Yes. But investors don't like that because then that makes their ownership in the in the enterprise worthless. Not worth le- not worthless, but just worth less, right? And then it screws up. Because it would just your- go straight across, right? It would yeah. just you, you, your your total net equity would not change at all on that day the acquisition happened. Well, yeah, among the two companies, but then the uh, your your ratios, like you know, assets to liabilities ratios and stuff, would would not look as good, right? So. I, I don't know. So, so you should be on a board or a panel for this, Blake. This uh, could be your new pet project, side project. Well, so so this is here's the problem. FASB, at least in my view, for whatever it's worth, is completely missing the point here. It's that Gap isn't properly measuring at the individual asset level the value of what investors think that the company is worth as a as a whole. So, this is a problem that's just going to keep growing. So. To be arguing about whether or not we should amortize it or test for impairment misses the point. We really need to figure out how to do accounting better in a modern subscription-based economy, a world of intellectual property and intangible But your argument is to attack it all, not just these little one-offs, attack goodwill here, attack this little line here, like reinvent standard accounting practices across the board. Yeah, we need to make big changes. So this is not a change that's going to actually fix things or provide useful information to investors. All it's doing is, here's here's what we're doing, is just talking about how to write off a plug for something we don't understand. Are we going to do it 
every year and test for impairment? Or are we going to do it, amortize it over time? Like it's it's not not getting at the root of the problem. So that is uh, my opinion as somebody who knows uh, enough about accounting to be dangerous. I would be really curious to hear what our listeners think about this. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Bill.com. Small businesses want client accounting services, and here's proof. In the 2019 Bill.com Hire Fire Index Survey of small businesses, more than half prefer to hire accounting firms that offer a wide range of accounting, tax, and financial services. Another 40% said they would hire a firm based on its ability to offer proactive advice about their businesses. And 48% said they would stop referring their accounting firm if it could not offer strategic advice. An easy way to offer profitable client accounting services in your firm is to start with accounts payable. Using Bill.com, accounting firms can take clients' time-consuming, clunky, and manual AP process and transform it completely with automation, tracking, mobility, and transparency, setting the stage for more conversations about what else your accounting firm can do to help the client. To learn more about how Bill.com can help your firm offer client advisory services, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash bill. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash B-I-L-L. Bill.com, the intelligent business payments platform. So uh, I have a related story, uh, you know, kind okay. of you talk about kind of this old mindsets, if you want to think about that way or think that it needs to be fixed. KPMG unveils a 450 million tech training center in Orlando. $450 million, this building. I s- tried to see the pictures, but I was blocked okay. by a paywall. So it's the late, it's, so basically it's the biggest tool yet that the big four accounting firms have launched to uh, train their employees to come up into the digital era. And I just feel it's kind of funny because they're trying to train people on blockchain and audit technologies and all this technology, 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 but it's all on-site training. It's none of it's remote or like <laughs> using the video conferencing or anything yeah. like that. It's, it's really, really shocking. Uh, yeah. Why are they, why did they build a giant campus to do this? It, I mean, tech, you know, you can do that anywhere. You do and, and then it's uh, the, <laughs> there's this like, Disillusion is not the right word here, but they're also playing this up as it's a way to reinforce employees the importance of corporate culture and to improve as a firm because this comes after they uh, had their audit practice and firm governments that they admitted they cheated the regulatory inspectors. That $50 million settlement with the SEC. And so they said the facility is designed to remind the 35,000 KPMG staffers of its values, like continuous learning and the power of collaboration and the important role that accountants play in capital markets. So like this building is made to symbolize a bunch of crap when they could just do remote training. Like it doesn't make any sense. Well, and, and the importance of accountants and capital markets, you know, is declining. As you just pointed (laughs) out, right? Right. Or we're on the brink of it. Oh, man. Well, you know why they can afford this, David? It's because audit fees keep rising. Why do audit fees keep rising? It's because FASB keeps passing new standards that don't really do all that much. They just they just employ more and more accountants. This was covered in accounting today back in January 15th. Apparently, average audit fees increased 4.25% from 2017 to 2018, going from an average of 2.2 million to 2.3 million, mainly driven by new standards from the Financial Accounting Standards Board. And that's according to a report from the Financial Education and Research Foundation, which is an affiliate of Financial Executives International. 
They also found that more public companies are seeing an increase in the volume of work needed to get an audit report from the outside auditors, 73%, than private companies, only 27%. And the big reason is FASB standards, right? We've got revenue recognition and leases. So KPMG can afford to spend 400, what do you say, 450 million? Half a billion dollars on a building here at campus, yes. On a building they don't need because they're just raking in the dough from audit fees. Living the dream. <laughs> yeah, but you have to be an auditor. So I have yeah. a, an interesting thing that I, uh, I learned about this week. What's that? Um, that's that's uh, tax related. So it was an article in the accounting web. Uh, it's the title of the article is "What CPAs and Clients Should Know About Tax Zapper Software." Are you tax zappers? Do you know what tax, tax zappers? Do you know software? what tax zappers are? No. Okay, so I didn't either. I was like, "This is very interesting." So I got on the Wikipedia. So a restaurant, a lot of cash based businesses, they have their point of sales. And this is really something that's probably going to affect desktop point of sales more, but I'm sure there's probably a, a SaaS product that does this as well, a cloud-based product. But essentially, you put it on an untraceable USB flash drive and you plug that into your point of sale. And it's just an easy way for you to run a little program and then it'll skim and remove a lot of your sales out of your point of sale at the end of the day. So the records that are recorded in your point of sale are fake. And then you just take out the cash you want to take out. And Whoa. so the warning is like, you need to make sure your clients aren't doing some things like this if they're your clients. But it was just, a, I did not even know these things existed. Uh, well, speaking of fraud, did you hear that the former Wells Fargo CEO has now been banned forever from banking? What's he going to do? I mean, I, I think he's probably going to be fine. Podcast. <laughs> he can become a podcaster. He, he, he can do a podcaster. So this is John Stumpf, who was the CEO of Wells Fargo when that whole f- fake account scandal happened, which I don't think anybody could have missed that. He stepped down in back in 2016. It was the biggest financial banking scandal since the crisis. And he agreed to an unusual lifetime ban as part of a settlement with the office of the comptroller of the currency. He also has to pay a $17.5 million fine. I don't know what his net worth is, but I'm going to guess he'll be just fine after this. They're also going after some of the other executives the OCC announced charges against five former Wells Fargo officials, including Carrie Tolstet, who headed the community bank division that was at the center of the scandal. So they're going to try and find her $25 million and the other four defendants $12.5 million. So the lesson here is if you create a culture of fraud at your company, even though you're not committing it, you will eventually, it'll eventually catch up to you. Yeah. I mean, although we don't know if this really is going to deter people or make a difference. Like I'm very skeptical of that because somehow these people always land on their feet, right? He'll get speaking engagements. Just like, uh, who's that Enron guy that was going around giving keynotes at a bunch of conferences? And I was like, so annoyed by that. Like why give this guy money? It's like politicians who go on the speaking circuit after they're, they're done. As yeah. Well. Yeah. You know, uh, get convicted, become a convicted felon and then profit off of your, <laughs> all that stuff. It's just, it's terrible. So speaking of conv- uh, felons, uh, do you remember the my payroll HR fraud? Yes. How could I forget? So it's back in the news again. So Cache Financial Services, and if anybody wants, they can go back and listen to the interview we did with Cache's uh, lawyer. So Cache is the money movement company that would move the basically they they're an ACH money movement company. So payroll companies could use them, and then they take the money, distribute it to all the other banks to get in the employees' accounts. And they they are basically left holding an empty twenty six million dollar bag when this my payroll HR fraud occurred. Yep. And they have now declared chapter 11 bankruptcy. So if you remember in October, they, they told informed people they can't do payroll anymore. And so they've obviously like, this is just another victim in this, my payroll HR fraud. 
it's it just it, it's amazing. This is a real company. People have jobs. It's- and it's not just Cache that's out because now they've declared bankruptcy. They've got 200, somewhere between 200 and 1,000 creditors that are owed money. And the biggest one is owed like close to $700,000. Lots of folks lost out due to this. You know, we're, we're on the sort of bad news track. So, let's continue, shall we? Okay. It's, got, it's like a snowball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, this is in Bloomberg. Pentagon racks up $35 trillion in accounting charges in one year. Is that all goodwill? I can't remember, is that David. goodwill? <laughs> no. It's, well, it's sort of similar, actually. It's unsubstantiated accounting adjustments. The Pentagon's accounting systems are so screwed up and so disjointed that they can't keep anything balanced. And so, the way that they reconcile their books is that they just post these adjustments. And I'm not sure exactly what is meant by accounting adjustments in- That's goodwill. (laughs) That's the goodwill account. (laughs) It's the same thing. Well, so this is like um, cash. Basically, they're reconciling their bank accounts and they don't know where the cash went. So, they'll just make adjustments. Oh, that's CIA budget. Yeah. This is so so obvious. So, this is crazy because the budget for defense- uh, is seven hundred thirty-eight billion, and the adjustments total to thirty-five trillion. Uh, and you wonder how is that possible? Well, according to Todd Harrison, a Pentagon budget expert with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, it's quote within that thirty trillion is a lot of double, triple, and quadruple counting of the same money as it got moved between accounts. These are, these systems aren't linked, so when money moves between accounts, they don't have a way to when they consolidate basically all of these different groups. They can't. They can't figure out where the money came from, where it went. Like, th- aren't they using a nice cloud ERP like Sage Intact? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. Uh, and a lot of it is blamed on the antiquated systems that they have. By the way, they had their first ever audit in 2018, and they completely failed that. While auditors found no evidence of fraud, they flagged a laundry list of problems, including these accounting adjustments. Now, there's something to me that's a little weird about that. So they didn't find fraud, but they flagged the accounting adjustments. The GAO estimated, based on a sample, that at least 96% of 181,947 automatic adjustments made in the fourth quarter of fiscal 2018 didn't have adequate supporting documentation. So these are essentially like journal entries where nobody attached any documentation to justify them. That's what this sounds like to me. It's hard to tell. Can you believe this? 182,000 automatic adjustments. 96% didn't have supporting documentation. And so, the auditors, while they didn't find fraud, they couldn't even look at these adjustments to determine whether there was fraud because they didn't have any supporting documentation. There's no place to start, right? There's no place to start. It's just just a date and a number. So, you can't even audit the Department of Defense because their books don't tie out. Their adjustments aren't supported. (laughs) This is what happens when there's like no accountability, I guess. It's kind of insane. In the, in the meantime, we've talked about this before, the IRS, the IRS gets zero budget to actually do anything. Right. The IRS, the money, the revenue generating arm of the government doesn't have enough money to hire enough auditors. That's why, as we have discussed, taxes are underpaid by 14% in this country. That we're losing out on 14% of revenue that we are legally supposed to be collecting due to the current tax laws, right? Because we don't have enough. Uh, Auditors. Shoot, uh, we can continue down this bad news train if you let's, want to. Let's just keep on going. Let's, let's just let's yeah, speed this lot. up. Speed this up a little bit. So, uh, hopefully, you have not done any work for the uh, city of New Orleans. No, uh, I visited last year, but because just spent money there. That's all. 
they had a cyber attack again. This is like the third time, I think, in the oh, last no. year and a half on December 13th, and it stalled their vendor payments. So it's going to cost them about $7.2 million and take as long as eight months to repair. The payments to city vendors have been delayed because employees can't get into their software to approve the payments. And the other thing they're having to do is they're it's an eyeball. They're using an eyeball on every single payment that goes out the door right now. So, uh, so it sounds like maybe possibly this cyber attack flooded a bunch of fake invoices into the system okay. and they're having to manually approve each one. And to make it worse, apparently email is still not working for 75% of city hall employees. Any email prior to the hack is still not accessible. How long has this been going on? This was December 13th. Oh man. So New Orleans is not having a, a good few. They should just format all the hard drives and just start from scratch at this point. This has been or, their third hack, I think. I, I want to know, are they going back to the pneumatic tubes? Do they have those? I, I have no idea. I have it, sort of this like, I, I like the idea of pneumatic tubes. Like every time I see that in an old movie, I, I wish that we still had that system. It's just so cool. So steampunk. Well, you, you, you being a, a music guy, I think there's a lot of like audio file type gear that still has that stuff in it, right? Uh, yeah, vacuum tubes. I remember actually going to a drive up ATM with my mom when I was a kid. And it was, well, it wasn't an ATM. It was like a drive up teller station and they had lanes and the teller was at one end. And so if you, if you were on a end that wasn't next to directly toward next to the teller's window, you had a pneumatic uh, tube and a voice box. So you could talk to the teller and then you would put your card and your withdrawal slip into the tube and it would like fly up. I'm just smiling right now. Like you're really, yeah. <laughs> it's a huge childhood memory for you. <laughs> oh, it was so cool. And then that of course immediately like went away and we had the ATMs. Okay. So let's talk about, let's talk about more FinTech, right? Since I was talking about pneumatic tubes and ATMs, we've spoken previously about the idea of the Fed creating its own cryptocurrency, yep. digital dollars. Well, the chairman of the Fed has poo-pooed that idea, but I have some good news. There is a movement to make this happen. This is called the Digital Dollar Project, and it's being led by former Commodity Futures Trading Commission chairman, Christopher Giancarlo. And he presented- And this is a US-based effort? Yes. So he presented his Digital Dollar Project at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe Trump was in the audience. He could have seen this and been inspired. The Digital Dollar Project aims to encourage the launch of a central bank digital currency in the United States, according to Giancarlo, who is one of the founders. It was announced last week as a partnership between the consultancy company Accenture and the Digital Dollar Foundation. Other founders of the DDF include another former official, Daniel uh, Gorfin, uh, blah, blah, blah. I don't know who those people are. Somebody from Cisco. Basically, this digital dollar would be distributed through commercial banks and other trusted payment processors. And it's similar to the idea being explored, actually put into, uh, I think, implemented in China, which is working on its own digital currency. So I'm happy to hear this because I don't want us to fall behind China. If China creates a digital currency, that could really chip away at the dollar as the standard for international commerce. Yeah. And and there's an article from NPR, Scott Zert from CPA Academy texted it to us. Um, So China is about to start testing their digital currency. Oh. So they've been working on it for about seven years. 
But then when Facebook started to chat more about launching Libra, remember we talked about mm-hmm. Facebook Libra and Facebook uh, run at this kind of digital global currency thing, and then people pulled out and it's 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 not easy to solve this. But since then, China really doubled down on their efforts to get this to market. Hugh gets their first prize, a huge advantage. And when, when he, he being a country, right? I mean, there's lots of smaller people building cryptocurrency things like this or coins like this, but I, I, I absolutely believe the US has to do this. Mm-hmm. Well, so there's one other cool government uh, initiative that is really exciting to me or interesting. Have you ever voted online in an election, like an actual election? No. It's a, I think it's the dumbest idea of all. <laughs> <laughs> well, Seattle, King County has decided to try it out. Uh, <laughs> they are testing a new mobile voting solution. Voters in Washington State's most populous county are going to be able to use their phones to vote in a local election. Actually, they can do it now. It started Wednesday. It's the most extensive use of mobile voting in a U.S. election to date. So there are 1.2 million voters in King County. It includes Seattle. And they'll be able to cast ballots electronically on their smartphones or computers by logging into a portal. The election is for a seat on the board of the King Conservation District a local agency that promotes environmental sustainability. Which historically, my understanding, I think I heard on uh, NPR, has the lowest turnout of all voting initiatives they ever have. Like it, it's, it's, it's under 1%. It is, what does? It's very, the, this position they're voting for. Oh. <laughs> people, people do not vote for it. So in a way, this is like, oh, we're going to do a mobile phone voting and it's set up for success. If they could get anybody, if they increase the number by a small percentage, it'll be huge. So- Here's what's interesting to me about this. The way that you are going to cast your ballot is you log into a portal and you verify your identity by providing your name, date of birth, and signature, which will be checked against the county's voter rolls. So all I need to vote is my name, date of birth, and signature. Which is what you present at a voter station. Right. But I I don't have to go there to do it. So like it would be very easy for anybody to vote on my behalf by just knowing my name, date of birth, and what my signature looks like. So that's not very secure, right? There's nothing good idea about this at all. <laughs> well, just and- not, I mean, you just talked about the crappy computer systems of the IRS, the crappy computer systems that the Pentagon's using. Uh, look at poor New Orleans, right? Like, yeah. on, and we've talked about these stories all year. Like, there's, I have no confidence in any computer voting system. Zero. That the, it's zero confidence in this. Second question after the security issue is, how do you preserve anonymity? Because it's a database with names and how people voted, and somebody has to have access to that. So how could you ever do something similar for any election where you're promising voters anonymity, a blind a blind vote, right? And your phone, your cell phone is tracking everything you do on it. And so now 5 billion third-party advertisers know who you voted for which they can't do in a paper closed booth. Right. It, there's no there's this is the dumbest story you brought out here. <laughs> like well, like it, not not that it's a dumb story, it's just like <laughs> it is a, the dumbest idea in a story all year. <laughs> Even dumber than a digital dollar. It's um, dumber like, people, which is a great idea. Half a billion dollar buildings to do training. Oh yeah, it's dumber than that. Yeah, got it. Uh well, did you see the article about mint into its mint? Have you you know yeah. I, you use Mint, right? Or you have? I, I've I, used Mint uh, for a long – I mean, I still do. I, I use it less. Um, and what I mean by I use it less, I basically just use it as a place to check balances. 
like I don't use it for the budgeting. I don't use it to track, make sure my stuff's categorized correctly or any of that. I just use it to a quick way to see how all my account balances are really quickly. Um, so yeah, there's an article. I, I use Mint as well for like three years to do all of my personal budgeting before it got acquired by Intuit when it was like new and revolutionary and connected to all my bank accounts and imported my transactions automatically. Like that was hot and sexy and nobody did that, right? So I guess that was back in like 2007. And I spotted this article. You obviously saw it too. What the hell happened to Mint in Fast Company? And the first thing I thought was, it's really not fair that journalists get to complain about apps like this. They could just write an article. Like if they don't like something about an app they've been using, they can they can write an article that just rails on it. And we're stuck, you know, complaining on Twitter to nobody. <laughs> but like, is it legit? I don't know. You know, what is what is the criticism here? So, I mean, there's a little background. So, in 2009, Mint was bought by Intuit for at the, in those days it was a lot of money. It was 170 million dollars acquisition. Decade later, Mint is kind of what Mint is. And in that meantime, during that decade, the last decade, Intuit actually sold Quicken. One of the reasons they sold Quicken was Quicken never grew for 30 years. It just never grew. And ultimately, the same thing is with Mint, right? There's 13 million Mint registered Mint users, and it just doesn't grow. And the, the bigger reason, this is a, a much bigger thing with personal finances. You could argue every single person in this country should be doing personal finances and be using an app to do it. The reality is somewhere between 12 to 16 million do it. It's, it's, it's a hobby. Personal finance is a hobby. If people really did their personal finances properly, there'd be zero credit card debt in this country, right? This right. is not, they, they, this, it's not a growing market. Well, and-, and there's no, nobody has to do it. It just, so obviously a company like Intuit's only going to invest what they need to invest in it. So they haven't really put a lot of new features in it. <laughs> One of the criticisms is that it still uses Adobe Flash. And like basically everybody has ended that because of the security vulnerabilities of Flash. So I don't even know how you can use Mint anymore if you want to be secure. But the bigger criticism is it tests screwed up bank feeds. Just, I mean, we understand this is the cloud accounting industry. Right. Banks and bank feeds are a mess right now. And the transactions come through dirty. I think they gave an example about um, Slink TV or something. And it says like the city it's in. Like It's just... It's just the consumer feeling the same pain all of us as cloud accountants feel, right? With bank feeds and getting the data in. But Intuit, companies like Intuit and Zero are doubling down on cleaning up that data, getting it into the accounting system properly because there's a market for that. Nobody's going to pay for that. Nobody cares. Nobody cares if it says Sling TV. Well, this author of the article does, right? But if you really read the article from an objective point of view, the uh, the article has quotes from a former Mint uh, executive or, or the Mint the founder, founder Aaron yeah. Patzer, the founder, and then a lead engineer, an early lead engineer of Mint. And how convenient that the article mentions that former Mint founder uh, folks are launching a new personal finance app called Monarch. So in my opinion, this is a complete hit piece to promote this new app that's launching this year. That's a good assumption. Yeah. That that these That's not an assumption. That's how these things get written. <laughs> it's a good it's a good guess. Uh well if if you're looking for a new personal finance tool and you're tired of mint not working, I have a recommendation. I personally use You keep talking about what? This, but you I'm we're waiting for like a review or a blog post. You're always talking about you need a budget. And like, well, you know, I'm busy, okay? You know, I'll get around to it. But yeah, check out you need a budget. I I've been using it for like three months now and 
I really like it. It's good. You got to pay for it, but again, you get what you pay for, right? So I haven't had any broken bank feeds yet with YNAB and it's like 84 bucks a year. So everybody should be able to afford it because it'll save you that much for sure. I think I had a story last week or two weeks ago. It didn't make the cut, but Quicken. So Quicken was sold. Another company owns Quicken. They relaunched a version of Quicken, a mobile version, and you got to pay three bucks a month or whatever. It's like 40 bucks a year. And it has a lot of other features that Mint doesn't have. And if there's only 13 million people that are going to do their personal finances anyways, a, a huge portion of those would probably pay a little bit. Yeah, but they're not willing to pay that much, which limits the market for this. And that's why this is fundamentally different than TurboTax, which is in the same group of consumer products that Intuit makes. People have to file their taxes and they want to so they can get their refund. So they're happy to pay for TurboTax, even if they could do it for free. Whereas with Mint and these other apps, they can barely charge a hundred bucks a year because people just aren't willing to pay for personal finance, even though it's what they should be doing. And it will save them a ton of money and help them save for retirement and you know, people just and early on, this business model actually worked really well. It would look at your credit card balance, Blake, and it would know your interest rate. And then you would try to find offers, but okay, Blake, transfer your balance to this credit card to get a cheaper rate. So just like early on, remember all the travel sites? You actually could get good deals. You'd go to this travel site and they would play the prices. But now all of those, all the banks and all the credit cards, they're all they're not in cahoots, but they're all kind of in the same systems where the travel sites are. That's why when you go shopping for airplane tickets, it's the same price on every single site. Mm-hmm. Kind of the same thing. There's no real deal anymore that's offered up in these apps. So the conversion rates are probably really bad. But that was their business model. It's like, okay, we'll do it for free and we'll serve up credit offers, loan offers, et cetera. Right. right? right. Um, yeah, but so on the other so side, though, can, oh, good. there's only so many of those offers that you can sell to somebody before they're they're done. Right? They've got all the loans they need, right? Yes, so. exactly. So I have a, on the other the swing, you mentioned tax, right? Mm-hmm. Um, barely anybody does personal finances, but everybody has to do taxes. This is a survey from financebuzz.com. What tax anxiety? 95% of Americans feel confident about tax prep. Wow. 95% are confident. Yeah. And what's really interesting to this is um, how confident they are. Over two-thirds plan to file in January or February, well before the deadline, and only 2% expect to file after the deadline. And they're feeling good about their own tax filing abilities. 89% re- reporting that they feel confident they have their withholding set correctly, and 95% saying they're confident they're taking all the deductions they can. So at least 5% as a possible customer base for all of you tax accountants out there. <laughs> well, this is a vote of confidence in the industry, especially, you know, the, the do, do it do yourself. yourself. Yeah. Yourself they're, they're doing a really good job of making people feel like they're getting their money's worth and that they're going to file correctly. That's great. And just over half feel like they're paying too much in taxes, but 43% think they're paying just about the right amount. And 79% would prefer to receive a refund than to come out break even at tax time. Even though you're giving a free loan to the federal government. But at the end though, it, it kind of nice. feels like a win. It it's it's like a little victory. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, because people don't save enough anyway. So it's like the way that they, that's the way they save. They save in, with an interest-free loan to the government that they get back at the end of the year. Uh, let's go out on a high note, unless you got anything else. Um, there's teeny, uh, some, some little small stuff on raises that some companies got. Okay. Um, oh yeah, let's, so- let's cover those. So the, in January already, there's been a billion um, B2B fintech uh, VC bet, bets, right? Yep. OnPay took in $6 million. Flowcast took in $40 million. Yes. Um, my, my options might be worth something someday. Yeah. So OnPay is a <laughs> sponsor of the podcast, right? Flowcast, I used to work there. 
Avid Exchange, they took $260 million, and they've taken a lot over the last couple of years. And what's interesting about them, they're kind of an accounts payable automation play, but at a hyper level. So if you're a Fortune 500 company, you have every one of your bills, just go to this company. They have a warehouse. They're opening the mail. They're they're processing true end-to-end, not just like, oh, send us a PDF and then we process your accounts payable from that point. They're doing, they basically have a huge warehouse and they're, they're doing it all at high volume, massive, massive scale. And then Ceteris, uh, we've talked about before, they're another accounting firm with engineers play, similar to a bot keeper, a pilot, scale factor. We've talked about this uh, plenty of times on this podcast. They've raised another 9 million, bringing their total raise to 30. And they really intend to use it to continue building out their automation software. That's been the focus the last three years. But they also said that their focus, and it's still the core of their business, are franchise uh, businesses. So Jimmy John's, Orange 3 Fitnesses, Firehouse Subs. And that makes sense, right? Because if you're going to build out software to automate processes, you want to stick with franchises because they actually have processes. Yep. Yep. Right. If it's really hard to build software to automate random business owners. So I got one last thing before we go. Yeah. Some good news. Glassdoor is out with their annual list of the 50 best jobs in America. Number 16 on the list, nestled between finance manager and program manager is, drumroll please, accounting manager with a median base salary of $85,794, a job satisfaction of four out of five, and job openings of 3589 So. Get some. Yeah. It has the 19th highest median base salary of the 50 jobs ranked by Glassdoor, and it's tied for the ninth highest job satisfaction score along with data scientist and business development manager. And that info is thanks to Jason Bramwell over at Going Concern. What's funny is that in the past, Audit Manager made their list of the top 25 best jobs. I guess that was back in 2015, and they're not on the list anymore. So accounting managers, you're good. Audit managers, sorry, I guess your job isn't so great anymore. Kind of makes you wonder how these lists change every year so much. <laughs> they must be changing the criteria. So I don't, we don't have to talk about this article, but we'll put it in the show notes because I, I see this, hap- this discussion happen all the time about password managers. So, so Tom's guide is like, uh, they'll do they'll review computer hardware, phones, tech in general. They have a guide for uh, best password managers of 2020. And they compare seven password managers and reasons you'd use one or the other, one that's good for your family use, one that's good for office and client use. So if you're thinking about ways to manage your client passwords and manage your passwords for your uh, firm employees, go check out that article. It'll just be in the show notes. Cool. Well, David, I realized I got to jump on a call. This was fun as usual. When you're not on a call, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? At Blake P. Oliver on Twitter. And I'm Blake at BlakeOliver.com. Email me and leave us a review and we'll read it on the air. And you get a hold of me on Twitter is probably the easiest way, at David Leary. Cool. Bye. Bye. Time for the classifieds. Looking for some more great cloud accounting content? Ryan Lozana started and sold his own cloud accounting firm in just five years. Now he helps firms stay on the cutting edge through his free weekly email, curating the top five pieces of content that help you modernize your firm. Visit futurefirm.co slash cloud accounting to sign up. That's futurefirm.co slash cloud accounting. One of the biggest hurdles accounting firms face is finding training that is current and relevant. There is an answer, Elephant Training. Elephant offers webinars and training on Xero, QuickBooks, cloud-based apps, and modern practice management issues like remote leadership and creative compensation. 
Their instructors are firm owners who also happen to be international experts in cloud accounting. This year, Elephant is offering recordings of their most popular webinars plus additional valuable resources in their brand new learning library. You can use the code CAP20 for 20% off your subscription. Bulk licenses for firms are also available. Visit elephanttraining.com for more info. That is E-L-E-F-A-N-T training.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes in the links to get more info.